But by 1799, Carey is a 36-year-old, 38-year-old man who has been in India, and he's now living in his fourth place in India in, for six years. He has translated the entire Gospel of Matthew into Bengali. He's preached to crowds of hundreds. He's had thousands of conversations with Hindus. He's pastored three little churches made up of, of uh, nationals, but not India. That is, people who are visiting India, living in India, but not Indians. He's lost a five-year-old. He's had his wife uh, slip out of, ins- of sanity, and he hasn't seen a single Hindu saved. And, she, and, and he's just had a monsoon destroy his job. And so he needs some turning points. And God in his grace has him receive a communication in 1799 from Andrew Fuller that says, we have been recruiting people to help you, and they're on their way. In fact, we're sending three couples and two singles with children, a number of kids, who are all going to arrive a little later this year. And Carrie is thrilled. A team of volunteers. He had met William Ward in London right before he sailed. Ward at the time was a very young man. And, and Ward said, I'm training to be a printer. And I want to do printing for the Lord. And Carrie said, well, as soon as you finish your training, bring your printing press and come to me in India. I'm going to need you. And you have conversations like that, but you're never sure if somebody's actually going to show up. And here, William Ward shows up. A young lady shows up, Miss Tidd. I'm sorry that I can't tell you her first name. But she shows up intending to marry John Fountain, with whom she's been communicating. She arrives to find out that just months before, Fountain has died. Mr. and Mrs. Daniel Brunsden shows up. Mr. and Mrs. William Grant and their two kids. Joshua and Hannah Marshman and their three kids. This is a team. But now that creates a little bit of an issue. Because what's still against the law in India? Missions. You say, well, how's Kerry been there for six years? He's been running an indigo plantation. That is, he's had a job. And so as a missionary, he's been flying under the radar, although he's been sharing the gospel like crazy. But it's going to be kind of hard to convince the authorities that these people are not missionaries. And they sail in May of 1799. Well, the British say, you can't settle in Kidderpore. You can't go meet with Kerry. In fact, you're not allowed to stay here in India. And the Lord does something at this point which has far-reaching consequences. About 25 or 30 years earlier, the king of Denmark, of all things, had purchased property in Bengal called Sarampur just about 16 miles up the Huli River from Calcutta. And Denmark had sovereign control of this small territory in the middle of British India. Now, I don't know what the background of that is, why India, why the British wanted to sell territory to the Danes. I have no idea. And anybody know what the established church of Denmark was? It was Lutheran. And I live in Wisconsin. Lutherans and Baptists don't always get along great. But these Lutherans... The, the governor there in uh, Sarampur, he said, you know what? If the British won't let you settle in British India, we'll let you settle in Sarampur. Go figure. In fact, he takes this group of missionaries down to the Huli River and says, we've got some buildings here. There's a plot of property here. The Danish government owns it. We'll give it to you for a song. And suddenly they have property, complete with a couple of buildings. Now, they're going to add a lot more buildings. And William Ward is sent to Kitterpur after the the missionary body settles in Sarampur and says, uh, would you like to come join us? Now, that looks like the most obvious thing in the world. But he had just spent his life savings to buy property at Kitterpur. 
He had a church up and running already. They had made at least four moves over the previous seven years. His family was, was very tired. And Sarampur is near Calcutta. And his Calcutta experience had been uniformly bad. So what do you do? Well, in retrospect, it was an easy decision. You can be a businessman trying to win souls in Kitterpur, or you can be a missionary in Sarampur. And William Ward wrote home, Kerry has made up his mind to leave all and follow our Savior to Sarampur. And it doesn't look like a sacrifice from 2023, but it was a big step for Kerry. He didn't know the future like we do. And he said, you know what? That's what the Lord wants us to do. And so he moves his family, settling in Sarampur on January 10th, 1800. Property on the Huli River. Ward sets up a printing press. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about William Ward, but he was an amazing missionary. And this printing press, in about 10 years, is going to be printing more literature than any other printing press in all of Asia. It's going to be a massive operation. And then Joshua Marshman says, oh, by the way, oh yeah, I say it on my next slide. I'll come back to Marshman. William Grant and Daniel Brunston are dead within six months of arriving. Their, their widows go home. Because life expectancy for Westerners in tropical climates was very low. They didn't have medicines for, for any of the major tropical diseases like dysentery and malaria. Uh, they didn't have con- climate control. If I were to tell you the story of missions to Central Africa, I could have you all weeping in an hour. It was just life expectancy was under two years. And missionaries went and went and went. We read about brothers going to Africa, dying, and their brother coming to take their place and dying, and another brother coming to take their place. And men and women were heroic in getting the gospel into these areas. But Ward and Marshman not only survive, they thrive. And you never know, apart from the blessing of God, why people's metabolisms can handle the climate and others can't. But Joshua Marshman was a veteran educator. And his wife, Hannah, was a veteran educator. And they discovered that they cannot do specific mission work outside Sarampur. They're there to win India to Christ, and they're not allowed to go into India. But they can start schools, because the British like educated Indians, literate Indians. And so they allow them to start schools in in British territory, and they start lots and lots of schools. They've become known as the Sarampur Trio, Kerry, Ward, and Marshman. Probably the greatest missionary team in history. And they established the Sarampur community. The leader is William Carey. He's 39 years old, which makes him the oldest person there. He's he's the old, you know, he's the gray beard there. And he sets up the rules. What kind of rules does he set up? Well, first, I may be the leader, but I know I'm not above any of you. And in fact... We are going to avoid anything that create, could create dissension among us. And this may sound a little bit too much like Karl Marx, but in this small little setting, he said, everything is going to be common. So if Ward sells literature and it makes money, it's everybody's money. And we all support the schools and we all support the preaching and we hold all things in common. We eat our meals together. We love on each other. That's the way this community is going to work. If we get proceeds above what we need to live and we're going to live tight, we give it all to the mission work. And everybody bought in. We're going to have devotions as a community twice a day. We're going to eat all our meals together, and we're going to have preaching services several times a week, and the men are going to rotate those preaching uh, responsibilities. But in addition, he instituted two things, which I think are just uh, the wisdom of them. Every Saturday night, we're going to get together as a community, and everybody is going to say, I was really annoyed with you on Tuesday, and we're going to talk it out. And if anybody has a grievance... 
We're going to settle it every Saturday night. We're not carrying conflict through our community because we're trying to win people to Christ and people need to see that the gospel works. And then on Thursday nights, we're going to meet together for testimony times. And you can share what the Lord is doing in your life and and witnessing opportunities and and experiences of, of Bible study. And we just want to share our hearts. And so they're having their meals in common. They're living together, but then they're setting aside specific times so that they can be encouraged and they can solve problems. He established watchwords for the community. Honesty, intimacy, equality, equality. And the word equality there is the idea that as Indians become integrated into our ministry, and they did. They got integrated in as helpers with the translation work, as helpers with this big bookbinding enterprise, as helpers, domestic helpers, and all kinds of helpers. They're all around us. And we include them in everything. And we always treat them just like we would treat a European who showed up. That is, we will not fall prey to the idea that somehow, because we are from Europe and, or America, and because we have lighter skin, that we're somehow superior. No, we're all equal. Hannah Marshman became the community mom. By the time they arrived, remember, Dolly is not helping much. Uh, she, she has to be restrained often. And he's got these young boys who are becoming teenagers. I mean, Felix is... 14. He's turning 14 when they arrive at Srampur. And they are running wild. (laughs) Felix and William are the terror of the community. Because Gary's not the best dad. I mean, in fairness to him, he's got a thousand things going on. But they're they're my sons and they're terrorizing everyone. And Hannah Marshman became their mom. And uh, both of them are going to become missionaries later. And she starts schools for Hindu women. 14 of these schools over the next 25 years. And her impact as a missionary is is right up there with the men we're talking about. They go on preaching excursions regularly. It's not entirely legal for them to go out of Sarampur on preaching excursions, but those Indians sure need Christ, and they always go back to Sarampur. Ward and Marshman are preaching in Bengali by the end of their first year in the country. So we're talking about guys who have been preparing while they were in England, and once they're living among it, they pick it up very quickly. They got opposition both from the British government at times, depending on how passionate a local magistrate was, and from the Indians. We have our own culture. We have our own religion. We don't need yours. Thank you. They begin distributing Carrie's translation of Matthew. And for several months at the beginning, they're, they're launching all of these ministries. And they don't see any Hindu converts. And Carrie writes home a difficult missionary letter. But it shows his optimism. I have no doubt. But in the end... The God of all grace will exert his almighty power and establish the glory of his own name in this country. Our labors may be only like those of pioneers to prepare the way, but truth will assuredly prevail. And this, among other kingdoms of the earth, shall assuredly see the salvation of our God. That is, God's going to do it. We don't do it. And therefore, when we don't see it, we say he just must not be doing it yet. We're evangelizing. We're praying. We're busy. But we can't make results. Isn't that liberating? To know that you can't make results, that God has to build his church. And then the strangest thing happens. October of 1800, John Thomas shows up. John Thomas, who's been doing little schemes across India and sort of making a wreck of his life and burning through money and can't handle his debts. But he's a believer and he loves Jesus and he loves Hindus. He's just not very disciplined. But he is a doctor. And a Hindu by the name of Krishna Pal hurt himself, injured his shoulder rather severely. And found out that, you know, these Westerners, I bet they've got better medicine. And he, and he comes to Sarampur. 
And John Thomas treats his shoulder and witnesses to him and gets his attention by God's grace. And Krishna begins attending Bible studies and he hears Carrie and he hears Ward. They were the two best preachers, main preachers. And Krishna got saved. Took about two months and he professed faith in Jesus Christ. And right at the end of 1800, on December 28th, William Carey baptized his first Hindu after seven years of evangelizing in India. And the community did not like it. In fact, Krishnapal's daughter was engaged to be married to a Hindu in the community. And the family of the groom were so afraid that she'd get sucked into this cult that they abducted her and made sure that she married their son before she could be corrupted. It's a horrible story. And sometimes stories like that do not end well. All right. In fact, I'm almost afraid to give you the next bullet point because sometimes missionary stories, everything's roses, everything turns out well. Well, in this case, William Carey pursued that family and later both the husband and Krishnapal's daughter got saved and were added to their ministry. Praise God for that. Here is William Ward's account. I'm going to give you a few quotes this, this morning. Hope you'll bear with these. I only picked ones I think are really good. William Ward wrote about the baptismal service, and I have to give you his words. After our English service at which I preached on baptism, we went to the riverside immediately opposite our gate when the governor, a number of Europeans and Portuguese, and many Hindus and Mohammedans attended. So there's a pretty good crowd gathering here at the river. We sang in Bengali, Jesus and shall it ever be. Carrie then spoke in Bengali, particularly declaring that we did not think the water sacred. All right, that's a good thing to remind Indians of. All right, they... They worship water gods. They throw their babies in the rivers, etc. We do not think the water sacred, but water only. And that the one from amongst them about to be baptized professed by this act to put off all sins and to put on Christ. After prayer, he went down the bank into the water, taking Felix in his right hand and baptized him. Well, that's pretty cool. That's, how he, that's when we find out that Felix, finally as a teenager, has not only been reined in in his discipline, but he's gotten saved. And Carrie baptizes Felix, his oldest son. Then Krishna went down and was baptized, the words in Bengali. All was silence. The governor could not restrain his tears, the, L- the Lutheran governor. And almost everyone seemed struck with the solemnity of this new ordinance. I never saw in the most orderly congregation in England anything more impressive. And then Carrie writes, Ye gods of stone and clay, did ye not tremble when in the triune name one soul shook you from his feet as dust? God's breaking into India. Now, this is not the first person ever in India to be saved. All right, there had been Indian missions down in Kerala by uh, Schwartz, uh, Schwartz, Burr, Schwartz, his name was. He was a German Lutheran missionary, wonderful work in southern India. There had been other missions in India. But in Bengal, this is the breakthrough. More are going to come. The community establishes 11 statements of purpose in 1804. Number one, to set an infinite value on men's souls. That's a good purpose. To acquaint ourselves with the snares which hold the minds of the people. To abstain from whatever deepens India's prejudice against the gospel. That is, if we Europeans do something and Indians find it off-putting, stop. We just don't need to do that. Number four, to watch for every chance of doing the people good. We're going to say more about that. They loved Indian people. They loved Indian people. And therefore, when they gave the gospel to a poor Indian, they also gave him food because they loved that Indian. Now, they didn't bribe people into hearing the gospel. They were not social gospelers. They didn't think giving them food was the gospel. But they weren't going to stand by and watch an Indian starve while they were preaching to them. And it turns out that Indian society had a lot of problems. And they were concerned about all of them. 
Number five, to preach Christ crucified as the grand means of conversion. To esteem and treat Indians always as our equals. To guard and build up the host that may be gathered. That is, once somebody gets saved, our job is just beginning. They've got to be established in local churches. They've got to be guarded against error and heresy. We don't want to have people pray a prayer and then wander into something that's even worse. Number eight, to cultivate their spiritual gifts ever pressing upon them their missionary obligations since Indians only can win India for Christ. That is, we're never going to have enough missionaries here to win India. We need Indians to win India. Number nine, to labor unceasingly in biblical translation. Number ten, to be instant in the nurture of personal religion. We heard about that in the men's thing downstairs, and I think you heard something about it up here as well, that all of our ministries to others will only be as strong as our work, our, our personal devotion to Jesus Christ. And number eleven, to give ourselves without reserve to the cause, not counting even the clothes we wear our own. Everything belongs to Christ. So, that brings me to mature ministry, 1804 to 1834. And at this point, I have a task which would have been impossible, and so I've reduced it to a possible task. If I were to take you year by year now, month by month, episode by episode through the next 30 years, I, at some point you would say, stop, we need to eat lunch and, and go away. So, instead, what I've done with the next 30 years is I have divided it into four topical areas. Carry the translator, carry the educator professor, carry the reformer, and carry the family man. And by kind of scanning these four areas relative to the life of William Carey, I believe we can be instructed and hopefully inspired in each area. So let's begin with the one which will by far the most show us Carey's genius. Remember our theme? People have various levels of gifts. We don't emulate those because they're unique to every individual. And people plod. They're disciplined. They keep after it. That's what we imitate. Well, this is an area where he was just super gifted. He studied Bengali. Actually, while he was traveling to India, he was working through this language. It's a very difficult language. By 1796, he had translated the entire New Testament. Let that sink in. Remember what was happening in his life in 1796? All right. That, I mean, his, his wife is almost the same by this time, and he's got a large family and he's working at an indigo plantation. He's translated the whole New Testament to Bengali. Over his lifetime, it's going to go through eight editions. Every time he puts out a new edition, he fixes a bunch of stuff. First, Bengali New Testament comes off the press of William Ward on February 17, 1801, and begins to be distributed. And he goes after the New Test- Old Testament. The Old Testament's way harder because it's Hebrew, which is way more foreign to English speakers than Greek is, and because it's more than three times as long as the New Testament. And he translates the whole Old Testament between 1802 and 1809, five editions. And then he goes to work on a Bengali grammar. Nobody had ever put out a Bengali grammar. And he puts together a dictionary. There's a picture of Bengali. I would read it to you, but I can't. But then Kerry says, you know what? The, the people who are literate in India, Bengali is kind of like the language of the people out there. The upper class use an old dead language for their scriptures. And that language was Sanskrit. It was the sacred language of the Hindus. All of their sacred writings were in Sanskrit. So he translates the Bible into Sanskrit. You want an old writing which is worth reading? This, this is one. But then he comes up with, he also uh, produces a Sanskrit grammar and a dictionary. And then he does something which was controversial at the time. He takes the Hindu scriptures, the Upanishads, the Vedas, the... I forget that there's a famous poem in there. He he takes them all. And most Hindus could not read their own scriptures. It's in a dead language. They just believe whatever their teachers tell them. And Kerry comes up with the idea that says, you know what? 
I want ordinary people to want to read their scriptures. Why? Because what do you have to do to read your scriptures? You have to learn how to read. And what he wrote home to the home office, to Andrew Fuller, when the home office was saying, uh, you're translating the Upanishads? And Carrie said, lots of people want to read the Upanishads. So I'm going to give it to them in their language. And then I'm going to give them a Bible and say, compare the two. We're going to win. He desired a literate Indian people. Sanskrit is vastly different from Bengali. It's totally different. There's a page of Sanskrit. By 1837, the year of Marshman's death, Carey and his associates had translated the Bible into some 40 languages and dialects. Carey himself was responsible for translating the entire Bible into Bengali, Uriya, Marathi, Hinki, Assamese, and Sanskrit, as well as portions of it into 29 other languages. We are told that when he was doing mature ministry, he had this whole body of translators with Indian scholars, all working on different languages at once. They would bring text before Kerry, and they would say, would you check this for us? They could bring him an Indian language, because India is a large subcontinent with a number of languages, and sometimes these languages are totally different from each other. They would bring him a text of, of, of a language, and if he had not even studied the language, he could look through it, and his linguistic skill was so great, he would say, you know, that looks like a participle, and I don't think they would structure it that way. You better go check this. And he would catch grammar errors in languages he didn't know. Because he just had a mind for linguistics that was almost unparalleled in the history of the church. But God allows things to happen that you don't foresee. And the biggest of these was a fire. In 1812, a fire broke out in their printing warehouse. They had tens of thousands of documents. In fact, I've given you, I should have summarized this quote. I apologize for reading this one to you. But a historian writes, this fire destroyed invaluable manuscripts, translations, dictionaries, grammars. They were, all, they were not all started on a flash drive. They didn't have a cloud. The magnus opus of Kerry's linguistic life, his dictionary of Sanskrit and its Indian cognates, is destroyed. Over 1,500 reams of paper destroyed, along with 4,400 pounds of English type, fonts of English cast, Hebrew and Greek, type for printing in 14 Eastern languages, and it all goes up in smoke. What do you do when that happens? You plod. You take the next step. And you surrender to the will of God. I wish to be still, Kerry wrote, the very next day, and know that the Lord is God. I wish to bow to his divine will in everything. He will no doubt bring good out of this evil and make it the occasion of promoting his interests. But to us at present, the providence is exceeding dark. I'm glad he said that last part. All right, he was human, but he will no doubt bring good out of this evil. Romans 8.28 stays true all the time, right? Any questions on Kerry the translator? Yeah, he was a genius. I will say one thing about this operation. Their goal was to put the Bible in as many people's hands in one generation as possible. And they translated the entire Bible into almost every major language from Iran to Burma and China. They produced a Chinese translation. They, you know, they, they produced a Persian translation. They produced a Burmese translation and everything in between. When you produce that many translations in, in about 30 years, don't be surprised if the translations are not great. And in fact, the only great translation that came out of all of that was the Bengali one that went through eight editions. Every one of those translations over the next 75 years is going to be replaced by a better translation. You know, Morrison is going to make his Chinese translation. They're going to make a translation to Persian. Judson is going to make his great Burmese translation, which they're still using 200 years later. You say, well, they should, this is God's word. They should have taken their time and done it right. The reason that missionaries could go into places like Persia and Burma is because the Bible went ahead of them. And people were already reading it. And even though it wasn't a great translation, even though people would read it and go, well, that's bad grammar, they're being prepared. And hundreds of thousands, millions of people have the Bible exposed to them. 
So this was Kerry's legacy. He also was into education. Sarampur used education in lots of ways. They established native schools, boarding schools, girls' schools, Sunday schools, all kinds of schools. By 1817, they had 103 schools with over 6,700 pupils in them. And what are they teaching? They teach literacy. They teach literacy in Bengali. They teach English because there's a hunger to learn English so so Indians can communicate effectively with the British. They teach math and science and you name it, they teach it. It's, it's It's an education. And they're teaching it as Christians. They teach it with a Christian worldview. They embed everything in truth. And the impact is enormous. And, it's a, and something very funny happens in 1801. Or 1801, this is early. The British government decides to build a college in Calcutta. Fort William College. And they need somebody to teach Bengali. And they're looking around for a Westerner. Because they're, they're not going to hire a an Indian at that point in British history. They're looking for a Westerner who knows Bengali well enough to teach it at the university level. And guess who they find? They come to William Carey up in Sarampur. And they said, would you be willing to come down and teach Bengali for us in our university? Third grade education, but he knows Bengali better than anyone else in India. And he decides to do it. It's a little intimidating. Right? That is, as I mentioned this morning, the first time he steps in a college classroom, he's the teacher. And mostly Brits are gathered there to learn Bengali so they can rule India more effectively. They pay him a marvelous salary. It's more money he's ever seen before. And where does all the money go? Into the common fund of Sarampur. That is, he just pours it into the, I mean, all that money is is our money. And it's used to finance all this publishing. Furthermore, it's a little hard. Uh, When I say road, it's not like he's sitting there. I mean, he would have people doing the rowing for him, but he has to go down a boat down the Huli River, 16 miles, whenever he goes to school. And so from Tuesday to Thursday, he sets up his schedule so that he can arrive and teach Bengali and spend the night and then go back and do ministry. And he splits time. He said, well, how long does he do that? Well, only for about 30 years. From April 1801 to May 1830, he begins teaching Sanskrit. He becomes an expert on Indian history. I mean... He becomes, he's given several honorary doctorates, universities around the world who don't care, couldn't care less that he's a missionary. He's, a, he's an incredible scholar. But all of it is so he can do missions. He's never just an educator. Brown University, an American university, gave him a Doctor of Divinity in 1807. And I wanted you to experience a typical day in Carey's life. I don't know how many days were exactly like this, but you'll see that he indicates this is not super exceptional. This comes from a prayer letter. I want you to imagine your church on Wednesday night saying, let's read a prayer letter from one of our missionaries. We do that almost every Wednesday in our church. And, uh, and this be the prayer letter. I rose this day at a quarter before six, read a chapter in the Hebrew Bible, and spent the time till seven in private addresses to God. That's his devotion. And then attended family prayer with the servants in Bengali. So he gathers the servants and has family prayer with him. While tea was pouring out, he's British, I read a little in Persian with a Munshi. Or Munshi was a Persian teacher that helped him out. So he's just dust, brushing up on his Persian, who was waiting when I left my bedroom. Read also before breakfast a portion of the scriptures in Hindustani, working on that language. The moment breakfast was over, I sat down to the translation of the Ramayana from Sanskrit with a pundit. A pundit is a helper, an Indian helper. Continued this translation till 10 o'clock, at which time I went to college. Uh, So he had to row down there. Attended the duties there till between 1 and 2 o'clock. When I returned home, I examined a proof sheet of the Bengali translation of Jeremiah, which took till dinner time. After dinner, translated with the assistant of the chief pundit of the college, greatest part of the 8th chapter of Matthew into Sanskrit. 
This employed me till six o'clock. After six, sat down with the Tlinga Pundit. That's another Indian language to learn that language. Mr. Thomas, different Mr. Thomas, uh, I should say Dr. Thomas, just a couple of months after leading Krishna Pal to Christ, also began to slip into insanity. Within a year, he had lost his mind and then he died as a relatively young man. But God had him right there in time for Krishna Pal to get saved. But another Mr. Thomas called in the evening. I began to collect a few previous thoughts into the form of a sermon. Right? So there's not a lot of time for sermon prep if this is your schedule. At 7 o'clock and preached in English at 7.30. The congregation was gone by 9 o'clock. I then sat down to write to you. After this, I conclude the evening by reading a chapter in the Greek Testament and commending myself to God. I have never more time in a day than this, though the exercises vary. If you are counting, he worked in eight different languages that day. That's not what my typical day looks like. It also might explain why he was not like the greatest dad ever. <laughs> that is, other people had to kind of raise his children. And I'm not justifying that. The Sarampur Trio, by 1818, decided they needed their own college. And they built one. Started out with 37 students, half internationals, half Hindus. They erected this structure in 1821. That building, I'm told, is still there. I don't have a modern picture of it. This was the best picture I could find of it. But they were seriously into education. They believed that illiterate people were a people who could respond to the gospel. Why? Because you don't want Christians who only know what they know from being told. You want Christians who read it for themselves. This is a Baptist idea. It's called the priesthood of the believer. All right, so translation, education. Any questions on that? Yes, ma'am. Mostly, uh, mostly they did charge. Now, they tried to make it accessible to poor people. They generated funds that they could uh, scholarship poor kids. Uh, but this, people will value what they pay for. And typically, these were schools that they charged for. They, I mean, they didn't try to make money. Uh, all the profits were poor. Nobody, nobody in this operation got wealthy. In fact, they lived like Indians. You know, they, they loved rice and curry. If you don't like rice and curry, go to India and learn to like rice and curry. Third, as I suggested a few minutes ago, they loved the people they were evangelizing. And therefore, they fought for those people in more ways than just sharing the gospel with them. Now, I don't like to put the word just in that sentence because nothing's more important than sharing the gospel. But as they shared the gospel, they saw the plight of these people. And one of the things they saw was widespread slavery. And Carey hated slavery. Uh, he believed that all people are created in the image of God. And he believed owning another human being was just an attack on the image of God. He never got to personally meet William Wilberforce. But they corresponded quite a bit. And Wilberforce, who was battling slavery, uh, received many encouragements from Carey to keep on going. And Carey found out that this, uh, well, before he ever left England, he said, you know what? The West Indian sugar trade is built on slave labor. I'm getting sugar out of my diet. And maybe that's why it was so healthy for so long. Uh, but I am still going to eat those cinnamon rolls. You know, I, I would make an exception for the cinnamon rolls. Maybe he would. I don't know. He's a wise man. Slave trades abolished 1807 through the efforts of William Wilberforce and a lot of people praying. And Carey, uh, they rejoiced in Sarampo when they heard that. And when the British finally ended slavery in 1833, by this time, Carey has been on the mission field for many, many years. They hold a month of Thanksgiving that the slave trade is finally over. Secondly, they oppose infant exposure. Hinduism is a religion that believes that you are on this long journey to nirvana in which you go your soul is transmigrated from your body into another. The better person you are, the better your next incarnation will be. But your life is short and cheap. And they did not value life very much at the time. And so when they had babies and they couldn't afford to feed them, or they didn't want a baby, or maybe it was a girl and they wanted a boy, 
they would take the baby and put it in a basket and hang it in the trees as a sacrifice to the gods. Extremely common. And Carrie, for one, they collected babies and would rear them. They started orphanages. Mary Slessor is famous for this in Africa, in Calabar. But they did this in Sarampur as well. But they also lobbied the British government to pass a law against it. And the British government was reluctant to pass laws like this. We don't really interfere with those types. I mean, if if the Hindus want to kill each other, what do we care? And Kerry said, we've got to be more civilized than this. And the people, it has to be outlawed. And then slowly but surely, it will die away. Another practice he preached against was abortion. Abortion was dangerous for Indian people because they used chemicals. The mother's life was in danger. But oftentimes, they, they still did it. People, people who want to abort their babies will find ways. And uh, he preached against it constantly, never got any laws passed against it. He opposed euthanasia. Now, they didn't call it euthanasia. But the Indians would take elderly people. I mean, the sooner they die, the sooner they can be reincarnated, maybe to a better life. Grandpa is a pretty good guy. He's got a, he's got a good shot here. Uh, let's take him down by the river and let him die. The river gods will take care of him until he's gone. And uh, the missionaries would rescue elderly people and give them care and love until they passed away. I don't know statistics, but can you imagine how many of these people got saved as a result? And then they went to the government and said, listen, you've got to forbid this. This is, this is utter inhumanity. And the British government eventually, each of these battles took years, but the government eventually passed a law against euthanasia. And then there was what Carey considered the worst of all. In 1799, William Carey was making a trip in villages in India, and he came upon a funeral pyre. And you probably know about this, but in Hindu culture for centuries, when, when a man died, they would take his wife or wives and burn them on the funeral pyre as a sacrifice with the man. That is, particularly high-level high men. That is, men who were up in the, in the villages, who had authority, had multiple wives. My wife, after I'm gone, is not marrying somebody else. Some of these wives bought into it. They would climb on the funeral pyre. Didn't they? I mean, I'm dying with my husband. Many were tied, kicking and screaming to funeral pyres. And William Carey watched a sati, watched a woman burn to death with her husband and, and, and screamed and shouted and tried to get him to stop and was chased away with sticks. You know, you don't interfere with our, our, uh, our ceremony. And he, he established a lifelong desire to stop sati. He started in 1799 complaining to various authorities about it. But it was being practiced all across India. The British Empire laid claim to India, but they mostly ruled about, you know, 50 years in all around, the, 50 miles in all around the coast. They didn't go into interior India all that much. And he opposed it and opposed it and opposed it. And then he came up with an idea. When he was translating the Hindu scriptures from Sanskrit into Bengali, he discovered something rather remarkable. There is not one word anywhere in the Hindu scriptures about sati. Not one. And so he, while he was in Calcutta, he, he was able to gather a number of the leading Brahmins, the teachers of Hindu, and say, show me from your scriptures why you burn widows. And they said, well, it's got to be in here somewhere. You know, I, I'm, I'm simulating the conversation, but they could not. And he said, well, then why do you do this? And they said, well, it's just a tradition. It's a tradition to burn people to death. Some of these women don't want to be burned to death. And uh, he, after showing that, he and leading Hindus were able to go to the British government and say, this is a bad practice, it needs to be stopped. And finally, in 1829, after literally 30 years of opposing this practice, a law was passed again. Well, praise God. One more thing. What about his married life? Because so far, we're probably not super happy with him. He married Dolly. 
And remember, they had a beautiful marriage through many difficult years. I mean, she was loving him, he was loving her, while they had no money and molten, and while they're caring for a bunch of nieces and nephews, and, and while they're going through hard times. She is there for him. She bears him five sons and two daughters. Uh, Dolly is a sad story. No, nobody intentionally has mental illness. It said, Carrie wrote, her misery and rage is extreme. Bless God, all the dirt which she throws is such as cannot stick. But it is the ruin of my children to hear such continual accusation. And after the missionary community arrived and they gathered in Sarampur, they said, with all due respect, Mr. 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 Carrie, you need to send Dolly home. They have asylums for people like her. And everybody would be safer and they'd feed her and take care of her. And Carrie said, I will, she, she came to India with me. I will care for her until the end. And he did do that for about 12 years. Hannah Marshman largely cared for the children. On December 8th, just before her 52nd birthday, mercifully, Dolly died and went to heaven. Well, this is a little quick, but there was a friend and colleague in the community, a Danish lady, who was a godly woman who had worked alongside. And on May 9th, 1808, William and Charlotte got married. Again, I think that's a little quick. He had a lot of kids. He needed help. And there's no evidence at all that he was unfaithful to his wife. She converted to Baptist views from her own Danish Lutheran faith. And that's kind of cool, because guess what Kerry got to do with Charlotte? He baptized her. Yeah, so he's had two wives, two baptisms so far. Charlotte was a magnificent missionary. She was fluent in several languages. Uh, she took over caring for Kerry's sons. They loved her as their mom. And she served alongside him for 13 years as an outstanding missionary and a wonderful helpmate. She died on May 30th, 1821, and Carrie wrote, We have been married 13 years and three weeks, during all which season I believe we had as great a share of conjugal happiness as ever was enjoyed by mortals. Uh, and it was a blessing. And then about a year later, he married Grace Hughes. God provided, I mean, he, he was, he was uh, 61 at this point, and uh, God provided a... Uh, a lovely English lady who married him. The kids were all out of the household by this time. But when she came to Sarampur, she was a relatively young Christian. And she was new to the Baptist. She she's kind of grown up an Anglican. And guess what Carrie got to do with Grace right before they married? He baptized her. So I don't know any other missionary who baptized three different wives. I, I think that's, uh, that's kind of a record. And she cared for him all the rest of his life. For the next 12 years... She faithfully cared for him, outliving him by a few years. Uh, my point is that I cannot endorse Carrie's decision to get on a ship with his oldest son and sail away without his wife and kids. Can't endorse that. It's, uh, it's, it's a painful thing to recount. And I believe he should have trusted God to change Dolly's heart. Got to blame Dolly a little bit. This is her spiritual head. This is her husband. And when she married him, she married him acknowledging his right to be the spiritual leader of the home. And she knew that God had called him to India and she needed to follow him to India. She did. She said, but it'll cause suffering. Yeah, following the Lord often causes suffering. You still, you do it. In fact, in 1 Peter 3, where um, Peter writes to wives, says, do not fear with any amazement to submit to your husbands. What's this fear? It's the fear of submitting to a sinner. I mean, when you submit to a sinner, he just may do something stupid and mess up your life. But, but God will be pleased. God will be pleased. And submission is not an option, just like husbands don't have an option of loving their wives. But Carrie had two wonderful marriages. So I don't think we can say necessarily he was a complete failure in that area. 
his health began to fail late 1820s. The mission was doing great. Uh, the British government finally dropped their ban on missionaries. It was, they actually began dropping it in like 1812. It just took eight years for it to finally go through. By this time, there were 50 missionaries, 18 mission stations. Felix is a little bit of a sad story. He went as a missionary to Burma, kind of fell off the wagon, got into alcohol, got right with the Lord, died in a very young man. Uh, he was only 36. William Ward passed away in 1823. Great missionary. Marshman outlived Carey by a year. But Carey's, I'm sorry, by three years. Carey's health, though, began to fail, 1834. By this time, Felix had been a missionary. Jabez and William were missionaries in India. Jonathan, who he had prayed for for years, the youngest son, shortly before Carey's death, came to the Lord, causing great rejoicing. And then on June 9th, at the age of 72, and if I were with college students, I would say, which is very young, right? And I'd make them all repeat it. Carey passed away, June 9th, 1834. And they asked him what he wanted on his tombstone. And he went back to a great Isaac Watts line, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm on thy kind arms I fall. And that tombstone is still visible there near Sarampur. So what do we learn as we wrap up? Because I know lunch is awaiting. Hopefully you guys don't have like roast beef in the oven, but we're going to get to lunch. On the one hand, Carey was unique in ways that you and I cannot emulate. He was a linguist. He was a botanist. He was a genius. I stand in awe of somebody who did all this with almost no formal education. But Carey was flawed. Not always a good husband. Not always a good father. Can a flawed person be a model for us? I hope so. We only have one unflawed model. We follow Christ. And we also follow Paul in as much as he follows Christ. And I follow Marty Marriott in as much as he follows Christ. And I follow my wife, Jamie, in as much as she follows Christ. I imitate her way of life. I follow my friend, my, my Titus, Dave Finkbeiner, in as much as he follows Christ. That is, we need models around us. Carrie's a model of humble service. Of all the people I've ever studied in church history, no one, with the possible exception of John Bunyan, comes across to me as more genuinely humble than William Carey. He, he, at one point, a British official said, why should we listen to you? You're just a shoemaker. And Kerry said, well, actually, I never was good at making shoes. I just fixed them. There was nothing in Kerry to defend himself. He could have said, I know 40 languages. That wasn't Kerry. Diligent service, sacrificial service. And I'll let him have the last word. I am this day 70 years old. He died two years later. A monument of divine mercy and goodness. Though on a review of my life, I find much, very much, for which I ought to be humbled in the dust. My direct and positive sins are innumerable. My negligence in the Lord's work has been great. I have not promoted His cause nor sought His glory and honor as I ought. Notwithstanding all this, I am spared till now and am still retained in His work. And I trust I am received into the divine favor through Christ, through Him. I wish to be more entirely devoted to His service. This is a 70-year-old. I wish I was more, more completely sanctified and more habitually exercising all the Christian graces and bringing forth the fruits of righteousness to the praise and honor of that Savior who gave His life a sacrifice for That was His heart's aspiration. And I hope it is ours. Let me pray and ask the Lord to use this in your lives and then Pastor will tell us what to do next. Thank you, Lord, for the example of William Carey. Lord, we're in awe at his genius. But Lord, that's just a gift. Kerry would say that he doesn't deserve any credit for that. You gave it to him. Thank you, Lord, that he plotted, that he faithfully and humbly and sacrificially gave his life for you. And thank you that you used him and this wonderful team that you established there in Sarampur to impact all of Asia for Christ. Thank you for the continuing dividends 
that are even now being reaped in India and in other places because of the work you did through Sarampur. Lord, help us to imitate Carrie's faithfulness. Help us to take the next step when we feel like we can't, when we feel like we just want to go back under the covers. I pray that we would, we would open our Bibles and get on our knees and talk to our neighbors and battle sins and do all those things which sometimes seem too big for us. Lord, help us to be conscious of the fact that they're not too big for you. And I pray that we would plot along being faithful in the work. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake.